hear the word this morning and prepare our hearts. We're praying not just that our ears would be tickled or our emotions would be touched, but that God would deposit a word for our very hearts, even us who deliver those words every week. So we ready ourselves and we welcome Duncan this morning to bring the word. I asked him how this morning he wanted to be introduced. He said, just say, I'm the most handsome, the most accomplished husband I could ever be. Is that right, Helen? Let's give him a warm welcome this morning as he brings the word. Good morning, everyone. It would be fair to say that everything that John just said was not correct, just for the record. So uh, it's a real privilege to have the opportunity to speak to you for a little while this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah and chapter 8. And uh, while I uh, uh, give you a few moments to locate the text, uh, what I'd like to do is just say a few words of introduction about me, because I appreciate that uh, it's generally a good thing to know something about the person that uh, is speaking to you. Uh, So I should probably let you know that I've been an Ely minister since 1997. Uh, Of those 20 years, I've spent 18 of them on the staff at the Elam Church in Coventry. And of those 18 years, I've spent just a little over 12 years as the senior pastor. And although I've uh, spent uh, more time living in Coventry than any other city in the UK, I actually spent my uh, teenage years growing up in Derby, uh, a wonderful place. In my mid-teens, I started to attend the Elam Church in Derby. And uh, at that time, Kevin Pete was my youth pastor. Uh, Gordon Neal was the senior pastor. Uh, It was Elim's dream team, I'm sure you'd uh, agree. And during those uh, teenage years, I had uh, a good number of God encounters. But I also, uh, not only did I have those uh, wonderful encounters with the Lord, but I also started dating the senior minister's daughter. And uh, as a result, I've never been allowed to leave the Elim family, as you can imagine. I I do have one distinct memory of uh, at least one of Helen and I's first dates. We were going to watch Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, that wonderful film. And uh, I was 18, Helen was 15. I turned up in my white Ford Fiesta 950cc, uh, collected Helen from uh, Gordon and Kay's house and uh, heard the words of Gordon behind us. There were four words. He said, remember, Jesus is watching, uh, which is... A slightly alarming thing to understand when uh, you're on a first date. I mean, when Jesus is watching, do you hold hands? I don't know. There we go. So 20 years ago, uh, Helen and I were married. We have four kids. And I've been really blessed to be adopted into Elim's family. I've been given some wonderful opportunities to serve and lead, uh, often beyond what I feel as my natural ability and natural skills. But uh, that's probably enough about me. So let me introduce the text to you. Uh, This text in Zechariah chapter 8 is declared by the prophet in around about 518 BC. The prophet Zechariah is speaking at a time in history when the people have returned from Babylon from exile, but they haven't yet completed the rebuilding of the temple. And so Zechariah delivers these words to both rebuke and encourage them, encouraging the people to roll up their sleeves and start the building work again. One of the ways that he does that is that he encourages them to imagine what their future might look like, to visualize what their lives might look like, what the city might look like if they return to the Lord. Because, of course, there's a glorious future that's ahead of them. They would just have to do a number of things to step into it. And so these are some of the words that Zechariah speaks. I'd like to read them to you. 
Uh, and then what I'd like to do is actually address them from the end and head towards the beginning, if that makes any sense. And so verse 18, it says, The word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Many peoples and inhabitants of many cities will yet come. And inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. Many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you because we've heard that God is with you. Towards the end of last year, uh, during one of our NLT meetings, Chris pulled out a flip chart. And he wrote four words on it, four words that I scribbled uh, into my uh, little journal, I guess, and four words that I uh, think Chris was communicating to us, believed, uh, at least he believed, raised four important questions as we approached this imagined year together. As he wrote them down, I scribbled them down and then uh, returned to them as uh, I was preparing this talk. And the four words were this. He he gave us the word position and he asked the question, where are we before God? He gave us the word partnership and he asked the question, who will we be working with? He gave us the word perspective and he asked the question, how will we look at the movement with fresh eyes? And he gave us the word purpose. And he asked us, where, where are, what are we aiming for? What are we going for? And as Chris outlined his thoughts around those four words, he returned back to the first P and I, uh, he pointed to it and I jotted down what he said. He said, it's essential that we don't rush towards purpose until we first identify our position or our posture before God, until we first prioritize the pursuit of his presence. And I think the reason that I scribbled those words down was that they resonated with me as something that the Lord has been doing in me and in the church in Coventry where I serve over the last two or three years. As a leader, I've always been someone who loves to plan, loves to organize, loves to strategize, loves to create programs and to set goals. But in uh, the recent years, I've discovered that there's actually some emptiness in that approach to leadership and ministry. I started to realize that there were some things in our scheduling that should have been our servants and they'd become our masters. I started to realize that purpose and programs mean very little without presence. And so uh, a couple of years ago, uh, my position and my posture changed, as did that of our church. And we determined that we would be presence-led rather than program-driven. And so as a church, we've been learning how to gather together for no other purpose than simply to worship him. Uh, We've been learning how to pursue his presence. We've been learning how to create spaces where an encounter with him is the only goal. And I know for some of you, that's maybe not a radical thing. It's not, a ra- it's not radical at all, but for us, it was quite a radical change. You know, I love the image that Zachariah paints for us right at the end of our text for this morning. He speaks to a people who he is encouraging to roll up their sleeves and get really busy with a building program, the construction of the temple. But he doesn't imagine 
that these people will be known for their building program. He imagines that they'll be known for the presence of God. They will be a people of presence, such to the extent that people who don't even know God will grab hold of their, their coats and say, let us go with you because we know that God is with you. Zechariah imagines a people so full of God, so close to him, that people will grab hold of them and they don't even have to explain it. They don't have to talk about it. The people that grab hold of them just know that the father is with them and they too are hungry for the father. And so they just grab hold of their coats. Zechariah imagines a people whose primary position is a people of presence. Now, it would be fair to say that that change of posture or position for me hasn't always come easy. Uh, I've been, uh, I guess, trained to work for him rather than walk with him. And so there's been times where we've pursued God's presence as a community and I felt incredibly lazy. I've turned up to meetings without having any kind of plan set out and simply have organized for somebody to lead us in worship. That's all I've done and that's, that's a difficult thing if you're a control freak. Any control freaks in the room? Yeah, to turn up to a meeting without a plan is a, a fairly radical thing. And I've struggled with this sometimes. Because sometimes this change of focus as a church hasn't always felt missional enough. You know, as a church, we've been worshipping and we've been praying more than we ever have done. But sometimes I've questioned whether that was to the detriment of our mission. And then something happened to me that uh, gave me greater clarity on this. So we're back at Christmas 2015. Uh, We did something as a church that you all have done. Uh, We held a a carol service. We held it right in the center of our city. We uh, encouraged people to invite their unsaved family and friends. And uh, so my wife, Helen, she invited four girls from work, four colleagues. They'd never been to church. They they weren't Christians. She sat with them on the balcony of the theater that uh, uh, that we gather in. I guess hoping that nothing weird or strange would happen, and uh, we've all probably been there. We sung some carols, uh, we heard some testimonies, I gave this kind of 10 minute talk, it was simple stuff. And then at the end of my talk, I uh, gave people an opportunity to pray a prayer with me. I I prayed a prayer saying, you know, if you want Jesus to come into your life, and all that kind of stuff, we've we've all done that. And then when I concluded the prayer, I, I said, you know... Uh, It might be really difficult for you to tell someone that you've prayed that prayer. It might be really difficult to look someone in the eyes and to do that. But what I'd encourage you to do is when you go home, just send a text to the person that brought you to church tonight and let them know you prayed that prayer and they'll know exactly what to do. And so uh, the service finished. It's around about 10 p.m. on that evening. Helen and I have done the post-service analysis that uh, that we all do. Uh, we've uh, drunk our Horlicks, we're heading to bed because the, the wild life that we lead. And, uh, and then Helen's phone buzzes, and it's her friend Jade. And these are the words she writes, she says, Helen, just want you to know that I prayed the prayer tonight, good night, love, Jade. And uh, Helen and I look at each other, and uh, if I remember rightly, uh, we held back the tears in that moment because Jade was a close friend, is a close friend of Helen's. And then we said to each other, what, do we, what on earth do we do now? <laughs> and so Helen texts back and just said, you know, so pleased, fantastic news. Love to talk to you at work tomorrow about that. So three days pass. 
And uh, because of the busyness of work, Helen and Jay don't have time to talk. And to be honest, we probably thought, well, this is just a passing phase. You know, it's like she prayed the prayer, but she's, she's not going to follow it through the next day. Three days pass. And then the, the following day, maybe four days down the line, Helen is in the car with Jade. They're just driving around to collect the kids from, from school. And Jade initiates a conversation with Helen. Now, I need to tell you three things. I need to tell you that first, Jade is a sane human being. Uh, secondly, I need you to know that she's never been to church in her life. And thirdly, that she, she has no idea of the things that Christians say. So she turns to Helen, and these are her, her exact words. She says, since Sunday night, it feels like someone has come to live inside me. So, uh, yeah, it's good. So I'm believing on the screens behind me, there's a picture of Jade 11 months after that carol service being baptized. Uh, Jade comes to church pretty much every week. She sits on the front row with the pastors. She doesn't know that's the thing you don't do. (laughs) She... uh, (laughs) Yeah, she serves in our kids' ministry. Uh, She's become part of our church community. And here's the thing. Jade's never been on a course. Jade's never been part of a program. But what she has done is she's encountered the Father's presence. And you need to hear me. I'm not saying we shouldn't do courses and programs because we do a whole load of courses and programs. But what I've understood and come to learn is that there's no substitute for presence. You know, what I love about our Pentecostal tradition is that we have this belief that if we make the space, God will come and meet us in power and the lost will be saved and lives will be transformed. What I love about the Zechariah text is that he envisions a people so full of the power and the presence of God that they become even like a magnet for people who are hungry to know God but don't yet know him. And then if you noticed in the text, the different kinds of people that are hanging on to the robe of that one Jew. It says there that they are people from all languages and nations. So Zechariah is imagining a people of diversity. In a foreshadowing of the day of Pentecost, Zechariah paints this wonderful picture of people from multiple nations speaking multiple languages coming to Jerusalem for the sole purpose of seeking the presence of the Lord. He imagines this God-hungry, diverse group of people. Folks, you know that it's the job of every leader to identify the season that their church or their organization is in. And I think think probably we would all agree that as a movement, we are in a season of increased diversity where people from multiple nations are joining with us, worshipping with us, serving with us. I, I believe that there's a grace on our movement at this season for that kind of thing. You know, our church in Coventry, I'm sure, is very similar to those that you serve in. We have people worshipping with us from between 50 and 65 different nations every single week. I guess some of you are having a similar experience. And you know what? I used to believe that that was a natural thing that was happening to us. I used to believe that because our city is diverse, therefore our church would be diverse. It was just a natural thing. It was an obvious thing. But the more I've reflected on it, 
the more I've realized that actually it's a natural thing for people to separate and segregate and hang around with each other, who, people who uh, think like each other, dress like each other, eat like each other, and so on. I used to think that it was natural what's happening to us, but I've discovered different. I've actually discovered that the unity and the diversity is not natural, it's supernatural. I I believe it happens to be a reflection of the Father's heart that all people, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I happen to believe that it's a reflection of the Father's heart that his house will be a house of prayer for all nations. I happen to believe that it's a reflection of heaven on earth. As we gather together with people of different tribes and tongues and we all join together and we sing our songs to our Saviour. What I think we're experiencing as a movement is not natural. It's a supernatural expression of Jesus' desire that everyone, people of all nations, will encounter the love of the Father and come home to him. You know, we had a precious moment in our church, uh, the Sunday after the Brexit vote. We had a number of folks in our church who were asking the question, am I still welcome in this country? You know, I was stood uh, uh, in front of our congregation that Sunday, that diverse group of people. And I was able to say to those folks, you know, you are welcome here. You are welcome in this house. Do you know, in that moment, the room filled with both, I think, were cheers and tears as people understood the kind of church that we were becoming. See, I think, folks, as as a movement, we are perfectly positioned to preach a message of welcome. We're perfectly positioned to create a banqueting table for everyone who has no place to call home. That's Zachariah's vision. He imagines a people so full of the presence of God that people from so many nations just can't help but join them. Now we may ask the question, what is it that specifically defines of this people of presence? What is it that, that was so special about them? Well, you'll see from the text that Zechariah imagines that they will be a people of joy and happiness. He says, the fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Some of you may know a little bit of the history. You may know that the fasts that Zechariah is referring to were actually designated to commemorate the events that surrounded the destruction of Jerusalem. These fasts were often considered to be mournful, sorrowful fasts. And yet Zechariah speaks to the people and he says, I want you to approach these times of fasting with a totally different perspective. It's like he's saying to them, guys, I want you to turn these fasts into a time of celebration because God has been faithful to you. In fact, you should be celebrating because God has brought you back home and the streets of Jerusalem are going to be populated again. He looks the people in the eye and says, folks, it's time for joy. It's actually time to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Zechariah says, you know, I, I know these are normally sorrowful occasions. And I know the rubble is still on the ground. And I know the temple isn't yet completed. But I want you to choose joy. How many of you know that sometimes that's a discipline you have to engage in? Sometimes you have to choose joy. Sometimes it doesn't flow natural. Sometimes it's a choice. You know, back in November of last year, I experimented with a spiritual discipline that I hadn't experimented with before. 
Uh, for 30 consecutive days, I read through uh, the letter of Philippians uh, out loud. Uh, I am an early riser. So I tend to engage with my personal devotions early in the morning before the family get up. And so for 30 consecutive days, I walked up and down my kitchen floor reading Philippians at a volume that I hoped wouldn't wake my family. Uh, It takes about 15 minutes to do that. I guess if you've ever read Philippians, you'll have seen what I saw. That Paul, as he writes those words, he writes them from a prison cell, expecting to be executed any moment. And yet he writes with such a... uh, Uh, uncontained levels of joy. And when you consider that he is writing them from prison and he's writing them maybe with a death sentence over him, you can only deduce that he's definitely choosing joy. It's a very intentional decision. I, I love how he starts the letter. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Do you know what happened on the first day? Do you know what happened at the start of that church? Well, we're told that Paul and Silas were stripped and beaten with rods. They were severely flogged. And then they were thrown into a rat-infested, stinking prison. And yet Paul is able to write, when I think of those early days, I always pray with joy. That's what it means to choose joy. I don't know if you've ever had one of those years in your church where you have equal amounts of blessing as you have challenge. Uh, We had one of those years last year. We had a fantastic, encouraging year, but we had some significant challenges. And there were moments that I was concerned that the challenges were going to create a shadow over the blessings. And I, at times, sensed that it was going to affect me as a person. And I remember sitting down with my personal therapist, uh, Pastor Sean Charlesworth, And uh, we discussed how I was going to handle this season. And we came to the conclusion that the only way that I was going to thrive was by intentionally choosing joy. To choose to actually enjoy leadership and ministry. You know, I think that's the kind of thing that Zechariah is encouraging the people to imagine. That's what he's imagining for them. Instead of being known as a people who are somber and sorrowful, instead of being known as a people who are overwhelmed by the challenges that surround them, they would be known as a people for whom God had turned their mourning into dancing. They would become a people known for their joy. And then have you noticed the other word? Uh, that Zachariah uses. He uses the word happy. He expects that God's people will turn these sad festivals into happy ones. Now, I think that we have uh, something of an uncomfortable relationship with that word happy. I would imagine that most of us have heard the old saying that says, happiness depends on happenings and joy depends on Jesus. And so that saying seems to suggest that happiness is inferior to joy. Because, of course, joy is based on the unchanging love that Jesus demonstrates for us on the cross. Whereas happiness depends on the things that happen to us. And, of course, those things change. And so we go after joy and we frown on happiness. But I need you to know that I'm actually quite happy with God creating things or causing things to happen in my life that make me happy. Anybody else okay with that? Anyone okay with a bit of happiness? So at the start of last year, 
uh, I heard Simon Foster give just a brilliant talk in our NLT devotions about the favor of God. And the way that our Heavenly Father just loves to demonstrate his delight in some very practical, tangible ways. Uh, just the, the way that things just happen to us in our everyday lives. And Simon, you might have heard him give these great talks about how he gets ridiculous levels of bargains. and uh, he, he gets loads of furniture and plants, like hundreds and hundreds of pounds worth for a tenner. You've heard those stories and we're all kind of jealous and, and, and so on. And what he was talking about was this, that when God does those things, when God makes those things happen, uh, he's doing it to let us know his approval of us, his love for us. He's making things happen that put a smile on our faces. And so uh, at the end of Simon's talk, he encouraged us just to go away and pray for the favor of the Father to be on our lives. And so I did that. Uh, For 10 consecutive days, I prayed for the favor of the Father to be on my life. And then after 10 days of praying that prayer, something happened to me that's going to sound ridiculously trivial to every single person in the room, apart from it was amazing for me. So Helen and I, we were in Euston Station. We're in Starbucks in London. Uh, We've just had a couple of days away, and uh, we were waiting for a train. And we're sat in Starbucks, and in walks a, a number of people that I recognized. In fact, it was the whole of the West Ham football team. And they all joined the queue to buy coffee. Now, you need to know that I've been a a lifelong West Ham supporter. I was born in Leytonstone. All my family are West Ham supporters. In fact, you can't be a member of my family unless you are a West Ham supporter. It's the law. And we started taking loads of random selfies with the players. Helen was taking random selfies with the players. She had no idea who they were, but she was taking random selfies with the players. And I guess there's one or two on the screen. There's me and Judas, Dimitri Payet. Forgive him. Now, I appreciate that it sounds ridiculously trivial. But what you need to know is this, that I grew up in a sport-mad culture where every dad took their kids to watch their favorite football team. It was just a way that dads would spend time with their kids and practically demonstrate their love for them. So here's my heavenly father, and he's not taking me to watch my favorite team. He's bringing my favorite team to me. (laughs) And it would be fair to say, that on that day, I felt something of the Father's favor. It was a happy day. For Zachariah imagines God's people as a people of joy and happiness. A people who are so alive because they've experienced both the abundant grace and the abundant favor of God. That therefore people from all nations are grabbing hold of them and saying, what is it about you? Why are you so happy? Why are you so full of joy? And these people are able to point towards a relationship that they have with the God of the universe, the good father who is dwelling with his people and he's pouring his favor out on their lives every day. And it's worth pointing out one final thing and then I'm done. Have you noticed what the source of this contagious joy and happiness is? Have you noticed what the starting point is? Well, in many ways, it's quite strange because these people are engaging with some fairly routine spiritual disciplines. 
They're engaging with four traditional periods of fasting. So as I've already mentioned to you, Zechariah is encouraging the people to turn these fasts into joyful celebratory occasions. But notice there that he doesn't tell them to abandon them completely. I think he imagines that God's people will be a people of rhythm. And by that I mean Zechariah valued that God's people would have a rhythm that leads to presence. A number of years ago now, somebody came to see me at church. Uh, You'd have had these kind of mentoring, spiritual input conversations multiple times like I have. And towards the end of the conversation, this guy asked me a question. A question you've probably been asked many times as well. He said, tell me what your devotional life looks like. And to be honest, uh, in that moment, I scratched around for an appropriate answer. Uh, At that time, my devotional life was fairly sketchy. It was fairly random. It was fairly ad hoc. I had no rhythm to it. If he'd have asked me, tell me how you spend time with your family, how you uh, spend time with your wife and so on, I could have given them a very clear rhythm as to how that worked for me. When he asked me about how I spent time with the Lord... My father, I I had no real answer, at least no specific answer. And I vowed a number of years ago that I would never be in that position again. And so in recent years, I've come to realize that my leadership is shaped by my defining moments and my daily disciplines. It's defined by those big, crucial decisions, but also my intentional daily rhythms. In recent years, I've learned the importance of building a secret place lifestyle. I've learned the importance of creating daily rhythms where there's always every day an opportunity where it's just me and my father. I've learned that if I love the spotlight more than the secret place, then I'm in trouble. I've learned That it's a problem if I'm passionate in worship when I'm surrounded by hundreds of people. But if my heart doesn't come alive when it's just me and him, I'm in trouble. I've learned that the most strategic thing I can do is plant my life in the secret place with God. You know, in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls his disciples, calls the 12th, he says there that he first called them to be with him. To be with him. Before he sends them out to preach, before he sends them out to heal the sick, before he sends them out to release the demonized, he says, he says there that he calls them to be with him. Every morning they get up and they are with him. The daily rhythm for three years is they get up and they are with him. You know, I may have this totally wrong. But I think sometimes as Pentecostals, we tend to value spontaneity over intentionality. We tend to value the mess more than we do the order. And I happen to believe, and this may be just my opinion, but I happen to believe that spontaneity functions best when it's placed on top of a foundation of intentionality. When it's placed on top of a life that's lived with intentional rhythms. Those rhythms are often hidden. They're daily, they're monthly, they're weekly, they're they're annual rhythms. But I believe that spontaneity is best built on the foundation of intentional rhythms. Zechariah doesn't tell the people to ditch the rhythms of traditional disciplines. He just wants to make sure that those rhythms are life-giving. 
that they lead to presence. So Zechariah paints a picture of a preferred future. He sees what God's people can become. He imagines a people employing a rhythm that leads to presence. He sees a ridiculously happy people because they're overwhelmed by the favor of the Father. He imagines a people with such strong faith that they can choose joy even in times of adversity. He sees a people so magnetic that they can attract people to God from all over the world. He imagines a people of presence. And so I wonder what you see. I wonder what you imagine. I wonder what you imagine for your own life. I wonder what you imagine for your family. I wonder what you see for the church that you serve. I I wonder what you imagine for the movement that you're called to. See, I'm pretty sure that in the next three days, we'll say a lot about our purpose. And I'm sure we'll say a great deal about the people or organizations that we're partnering with. And I'm sure also we'll seek to gain a fresh perspective of where Elim is at and where it's heading. But before all of those valuable things, we pursue his presence. Because we know that the father's presence in the house makes all the difference. We know that in his presence, there's fullness of joy. We know that in his presence, there's life and there's love. We know that in his presence, there's hope and there's healing. And so we will imagine and we will see that we become a people of presence. I wonder if you'll stand with me for a moment. Thank you so much for listening. And the band are going to join me. That's great, guys. Thank you. So many of you will know in the room that there's a code to entering God's presence. And that code is thanksgiving. Uh, Some of you probably have a code on your office door. You'll probably have a code to get into your house. You've probably got a code that uh, allows you to enter your building at at church. There's a code. And there's a code to enter the presence of God. It's thanksgiving. You enter his gates with thanksgiving. And his courts with praise. And in a few moments, that's exactly what we're going to do. And for some of you, that's going to be ridiculously easy. Some of you have arrived at conference this year and you have had a fantastic year. Life is wonderful. Uh, It's just going to be the easiest five minutes ahead of you because you have so much to give thanks for. It's going to be dead easy. But some of you less so. Some of you, this is going to be a moment where you have to choose joy. You have to choose gratitude. You have to choose thanksgiving. Now, sometimes we have to get used to this idea that we give thanks to God for imperfect gifts. I love the story of uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000. He lifts up the five loaves and two fish. And what does he do? He gives thanks for them. That's That's not a perfect gift. A perfect gift would have been five lorry loads of bread and fish. That would have been wonderful. He could have given thanks for that. But no, what does he do? He holds up the tiniest gift, the imperfect gift. And he says, we're going to just give thanks for this. And what does the father do when he gives thanks? He multiplies it. So there's just a whole load left over. And so we're going to give thanks. Because we enter his gates 
with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We're a people of presence. And the code into his presence is gratitude and thanksgiving. So shall we just start to do that, folks? Shall we just start to lift our hands, lift our voices to God and say, God, you're worthy. God, we honor you. God, we thank you. Father, we're grateful for your goodness. Father, we're grateful for your favor. Father, we're grateful for your love. You're a good God. We honor you. We worship you. We enter your gates with thanksgiving. We enter your courts with praise. Father, we know that you're a faithful Father. You've been so good to us. And so we reach out to you and we we sing our hearts out to you. We speak out words of love and gratitude and praise to you. Because we know, God, that we need your presence. Father, we need your presence. Yes, Lord. Let's just press in a little harder. Come on, Lord. Lord, we worship you. We worship you. Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we worship you. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Father, we worship you. Father, we worship you. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. You're worthy, Lord. Speak out words of love and joy and praise and adoration. Let's just keep lifting our voices to our God and say, God, you're worthy. God, you're to be adored. God, you're to be loved. God, you're to be praised in this place. You are worthy, Lord.